anybody been following the NCAA basketball tournament? Just curious. Leave it to Gordon. Wisconsin's going to make it in there somehow. I'll win. Yeah, it's kind of fun. It's like one of those things that if you're a sports fan, that week, yeah, the first weekend, that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you kind of immerse yourself. I haven't been into it this year, uh, which is odd for me, but I'll get over it. I hope you will too. But, you know, it, it's interesting. The, the idea of college athletics or athletics in general, when, when these uh, – the people kind of put themselves in those competitions, and you, you, you sense that, particularly in some of the games, as, as they're close, you just get a, the, the sense of excitement and the, the kind of, dare we say, battle of wills, yes? Or at least three-point jumpers, one or the other. It's going to go either way. And, and it's going to, hopefully, somewhere along the way, college athletics and, and athletics in general, I know we have some folks here that maybe play sports of various kinds of high school or, or little league and other things. You know, the, the idea is it builds character, right? Maybe it doesn't. Supposedly. Ideally. character, but alas. Yeah, character's a good thing. Do we all agree character's good? I'm glad. Whew. I don't know where that introduction went off the rails, but it did. <laughs> so never mind. Open your Bibles to Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's going to be up on the screens. We'll just jump right in here and forget all that stuff now. We'll forget the segue. Harsh left turn. Mark chapter 4. Last week we started talking about um, Jesus had a habit of asking very pointed questions. And we looked at one uh, last week. We're going to look at another one today, and it's in Mark chapter 4. We're going to jump in toward the end of the chapter, about verse 35, and we'll see Jesus with his disciples have to kind of confront them with some things. And I think it's something that, that we probably need to be asked to. Sometimes we can relate to how these disciples are feeling. Uh, verse 35 is the first verse we're going to look at, and it tells us this. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, meaning of the lake. And so, next verse, it says this. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. So get in the boat, head across the Sea of Galilee. Next verse tells us this. A furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Hey, we're in the Keys. Anybody had a furious squall come up over your boat? Can I get a witness? You ever been in that? You know, that is no fun, isn't it? Is it not? It's just not good. If you're out there and, and the storm comes up, I've heard some of the stories. I don't think I've ever been in really a furious squall kind of a situation, but I've heard those who have been and you know, lightning is booming, you know, oh, there's the thunderhead, we'll just go right around it. Yeah, thunderheads are kind of funny that way. They don't always show you which direction they're moving, and, and there you I mean, it's pretty frightening. It can be a very scary situation. And that's what these disciples find themselves in. Um, and, and how are they going to deal with it? Well, let's find out. Next verse. Jesus was in the stern, and what's he doing? imagine sleeping through this? Well, 
that's what Jesus is doing. He's sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now remember, this is about Jesus' question, not the disciples' question. And so let's not focus too much on that question because we know the answer to it. Of course Jesus cares if we if we drown. He got up, meaning Jesus, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down. It was completely calm. And now I think we come to the question that we want to think about today. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you so afraid? I think that word so is pretty important. He didn't say, Why are you afraid? Because there are things that face us, and fear as an emotion sort of just happens. Most of us don't plan to be afraid. Usually fear is something that happens in reaction to a certain stimulus, to a certain situation. The issue here, I think, and the the intensification of the word so, is the fact that these disciples decided to get wrapped up in their fear. They decided to ride that wave of fear as far as it would go. And they began to, to go from just a situation that rightfully should have caused them to maybe be a little afraid to allowing fear to overtake them. And Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you ever been afraid? Anyone ever afraid? Spiders? We have a fear of spiders here. Uh, Snakes. Fear of snakes. Okay, I hit a nerve. The devil's a snake, so that one's okay. No, I'm just kidding. Let's see, what else are we afraid of? Anybody afraid of... If I said crowds, that'd probably be a bad thing. Afraid of driving. How about speaking Speaking in public? Anybody afraid besides me of speaking in public? Yes. And some publics different than other publics, but nonetheless. Um, you know, we have all these fears. And, and, and again, I want you to understand, being afraid I don't think is the issue. Sometimes our emotions are just that. They're emotions. They just happen in response to the circumstances we find ourselves in. It's where do we let them go? And I think what we can learn here, what we'll try to learn today, is the reality that the disciples miss some pretty important things going on, miss some pretty important principles that they should have been grounded in, and that's why they went from just being afraid of circumstances that would put you on edge. You know, sometimes fear is a very beneficial thing kind of puts you on alert and allows you to act in ways that maybe you wouldn't have. It adds an urgency to your action. But then fear can also be crippling if that's all it is and it becomes so overwhelming. Why are you so afraid, Jesus said? Do you still have no faith? Now, now, I don't know if you're familiar with with Israel and and its um, geography, but where these disciples were and where this boat is is a particularly interesting place. It's on the Sea of Galilee. And if you've ever seen pictures of it, you, you know it sort of sets between some mountains. And actually, it is the second lowest body of water in the world. It's over 650 feet below sea level. The only one lower is the Dead Sea. That's pretty remarkable. Can you imagine something being that far below? How does that even happen? I don't know. But it's Israel, and so those things happen over there, I guess. And there it is. And, and because of the mountains around it and because of the way the mountains are set up, there's certain, like, they're almost like wind tunnels that funnel to that body of water. And as the wind blows, it's subject to these very violent 
and very sudden storms. And isn't life like that? Have you ever been cruising along and minding your own business in life? Everything's going well, not a care in the world, and then whammo! A storm comes up. Something goes wrong. Something happens. News, a phone call. However it happens, a conversation with a friend, something out of the blue comes along and hits you. It is inevitable for us who live this thing called life that even when we think everything is going great, that there will be times when we're caught off guard by storms. Well, I want you to notice what the disciples should have noticed, and that's that Jesus was in the boat. Isn't that good news? Even if he's asleep, Jesus is still in the boat. I am glad when I face a storm, Jesus is in the boat of my life. Now, here's what you also need to know. Just because Jesus is in the boat doesn't mean you're never going to have a storm. A lot of people think that. Maybe you think that. Hey, I'm going to I'm going to place my faith in God. I'm going to place my faith in Jesus, and he's going to get in the boat of my life, and I'll never have a problem again. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's go, Jesus. Does it work that way? No. It doesn't. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you will have, in this world you will have trouble. But don't be afraid, for why? I have overcome the world. Jesus warns us in, in the Bible, that is the reality. Things are going to happen. And one of the reasons I think that Reality shouldn't surprise us is because Christianity isn't a, that bed of roses. Christianity isn't just this great playground for people of faith that everything is rosy. No, Christianity is a battleground. When we enter into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, Scripture describes it in a lot of ways. One way it describes it is moving from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And the kingdom of darkness ain't be liking that so much. And it shouldn't surprise us that when we move into the kingdom of light, that the kingdom of darkness might come against that movement, might try to do everything it can to pull us away from the kingdom of light. I want to look at a couple of verses real quick, kind of an aside or an excursus or whatever you want to call it. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a couple of verses that will help us today. Verse 4 is the first one I want to look at. We'll find out, by the way. Did you guys restart that program? After, never mind, we'll find out. Let's go, First, Second Corinthians chapter 4. Next verse. The God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Um, glory is a fascinating word. We could talk about that for a long time. I'll take John Piper's definition of glory. One way he describes glory is beauty. Sometimes we say something's glorious. Sometimes we just could use a synonym. It's beautiful. But you know what's interesting about beauty? You either see it, or you don't. Like, in college, we had to take a class. Um, you had a choice. You could take art appreciation or music appreciation. 
Is that just our college that I went to years ago? Anybody ever take those classes? I took music appreciation, which is kind of ironical, but nonetheless, um, I did. I took it, and here was the, uh, crazy. Here's all these pieces of music for this first test. And when test time came, this was the test. The teacher would drop a needle on a record. Does anybody know what a record is? You remember records, right? Records are, anyway. That, somehow drop a needle and play like 15 seconds, and you had to identify that piece of music from just those few seconds of it. And, you know, sometimes these pieces of music were relatively long from classical, you know, kind of classical and whatever. Here's the thing. Some people love and find those pieces of music amazing, and other people don't. Turn on the radio. I'm sure all of you, looking out at my congregation today, have your preset to the local rap station, right? No? Why? Because for whatever reason, you probably don't have that preset because that's not something that appeals to you. I could hold up a painting and say, isn't this beautiful? And you would either say, yes, it is, or no, it's not. It would be sort of a reaction to it. It would be a, a taking it in and understanding and processing in a way that you either see it as beautiful or see it as not beautiful. Maybe, maybe talent present there, maybe be impressed by the way the artist put together that piece of music or that, that particular painting, but that doesn't necessarily mean you find it appealing or beautiful or, or glorious. And I think even in this, we see that's what's happening. And Paul's writing, and he's saying to, to the church at Corinth, the, the God of this age, it's not like he's made Christ less beautiful, because he is the light of the gospel of the glory, the image of God, all of that that's present in that verse. He is all of those things. Not that the God of this age has made him less beautiful or glorious. He's simply blinded our eyes to see the beauty that is already present in who Christ is. And, and no matter how much we try, we can't convince somebody. I mean, in that music or art appreciation class you might have taken, the, the professor could say, this is a beautiful painting. And when the test time came, if question number one is, was this painting beautiful? If I wanted to get a good grade, I would write, Yes, even though I might think, uh-uh. But I know better than that because he told me it's beautiful and that's the answer he wants, so I give it to him. But we can't do that with, with these things because there, there is this battle, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, and the, the God of this age who is part of the kingdom of darkness wants to obscure the beauty of Christ in there. Verse 6 tells us a little bit more. It says in verse 6, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Remarkable to think. Now, how, how do you go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Sounds to me like God has to do something. The God who spoke before the darkness that was over the face of the deep. And what did he say into that? period of time. In Genesis, he said, let there be light. And there was light. And everything in that moment changed. Also can speak into our lives who do not see the glory or the beauty of the image of God in Christ. And he can speak into our lives so that we might see the light of the glory of God. I, I think this is, I don't 
think this is Palm Sunday. I know, in fact, this is Palm Sunday. And I, I know this isn't your traditional Palm Sunday message, but when you think about that event, you can see what's happening. Even there, these two kingdoms at work. You have Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and those who see the glory and hope to see even greater glory of God come into the city, line the streets and call out and throw the palm branches down. And those who are blinded to the glory of Christ, the glory of God in Christ Jesus, what do they do? They tell them to hush, to shut up, not to make the spectacle and begin to cement the plot that will eventually lead to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. We see even on this day that we remember on Palm Sunday, the, the battle that's very much at work between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And the question isn't, do you find Jesus beautiful or glorious? But a better question is, has God opened your eyes to see the inherent beauty that is there and who Jesus is? Because that is the one who said, let there be light. He must make his light shine in our hearts. And I think about those disciples, how closely they were to Jesus, how closely they walked with him, how much they had seen him do. And yet here in that moment, in that boat, that night, they couldn't see it. In the very boat that they traveled that lake was the one who all that we just read applies to, who was the glory of the image of God who was the beauty and the power and the majesty of Almighty God walking on this earth. And there they were confronted with the storm. All they could think about was their fear. When asleep in the boat was God himself. They missed it. In that moment, they missed it. And I think when we think about what, what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, our eyes have been blinded. It's like their eyes were blinded. Have you ever found yourself in that storm and you cannot for the life of you at all remember he who is on your side, who said, though in this world you will have trouble, take heart, take don't fear, for I have overcome the world. How easy it is to forget that once we place our faith in God through Jesus Christ, the very presence of and power and glory of God is there in our lives, even in the storms that we face. And you will have a storm. You may be in a storm. And you know, it really might annoy you, quite frankly, that all Jesus is, seems to be doing is sleeping through it. You're in a storm. You're panicked. And the one who can get up and say, peace, be still, is taking a nap? Doesn't he see my fear? Doesn't he sense my panic? Doesn't he know I need him to step up and to do something? Why was Jesus asleep? Not, not how, because that's also a thing. I mean, you know, I can't imagine being asleep in that. But he's Jesus, so we'll give him a pass, right? But why is he asleep? You're in a storm. You're praying. You're seeking. You're doing all you need, you know to do, and it feels like God is ignoring you or has forgotten you. And you ask the same question these disciples probably ask. Why is he asleep? Why is he not acting? 
And that's because we have to remember that not only is God with us in the storm, there is a purpose for the storm. I don't like that part. I would just rather not have storm. I would just rather go fishing and everything is flat calm. And every time my line hits the water, a monstrous, delicious fish bites it, chooses not to fight because he knows I'll win, swims to the boat, hops in the ice chest, and mouths, eat me. I would be good with that. But that's not how life is. That would even be better. Cleans itself. Now you're thinking. I like it. If only. There is a place. It's called the fisheries. <laughs> I guess they have a connection. But nonetheless, that's not how life is. I wish never there was a storm. But is it possible? I mean, when you read this passage, whose idea was it to cross the lake? It's okay. You can say the Sunday school answer. Yep. So is it possible to say, like we like to say sometimes, they were in the center of God's will? They were doing what they were supposed to be doing? They were going where they were supposed to be going? The next part of of Mark tells us that Jesus healed a demon-possessed man. And and so, obviously, there's a reason Jesus is going somewhere. You've got to get to the place where the demon-possessed man is. The disciples probably didn't know that. All they knew was there's a storm. And that's our life, too, isn't it? We don't know necessarily where it's going, where it's going to end up. We don't know what's next. We just know right now it's a storm, and I don't like it. That doesn't mean that God can't use the storm. You remember your favorite? Maybe this wasn't your favorite. I know it wasn't your favorite. Does anybody like pop quizzes? You know, the teacher tells you, um, maybe over the weekend or before class tomorrow, I want you to read chapters 4 and 5 in your book. And, you know, whatever, it's just a book, it's just your education, it's just your future, what's the big deal? Your friends want to go play baseball, or it's the weekend and you have plans, or you're going out of town, and you come in Monday and you sit down in class, you're like, oh, I guess I didn't read it, no big deal. And the teacher says, pop quiz, and passes out those ten questions, which means they're worth ten points apiece, which means, like, if you miss one Two and three, you're like down to a, a low C, high D if you just miss three. And there's no partial credit on these either. I hate pop quizzes, you think. Why does a teacher give you a pop quiz? Why does a teacher give you a test period? Isn't it to hopefully ascertain what you've learned and to point, help you take what you've learned and maybe make sense of it in a testing situation so that one day in the real world, When someone comes up to you and says, I'm having a real hard time solving for X, you can say, this is what algebra was for. I get it now. No, maybe not. Hopefully you can take what you've learned and apply. You can take the the lessons of the reading or, or the exercises of the class, and it makes a difference. It grows your knowledge base so that practically you can put it into use. And that's what happens in a storm. It's a test. What does the brother of Jesus, James, say? Consider it pure Joy. Guy was crazy. Consider it pure joy, James chapter 1, verse 2, when you face 
My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? For the testing of your faith. Next verse. Develops perseverance. Next verse. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy. Like when the teacher says pop quiz, you're like, hallelujah, thank you, Mrs. What's your name? I think that's what you should do. In fact, if you're a student and you go back tomorrow and your teacher, I I want you to do that and tell me how that works out. I would love to know. I would love, love, love to hear back that report. Maybe we'll even give you a mic next Sunday. You can tell her we don't know. And could you imagine? We, We don't look forward to tests, but James says, it's, it's joy. Consider it worthwhile. Consider it something good because it's that which will ultimately mature you, complete you, get you ready to face whatever is out there. These disciples, they didn't know it at the time. They were just taking a boat because Jesus said, get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. They just thought it was a, a taxi service. It was transportation. They didn't know that in just a few years' time, Jesus would be gone, and they would be charged with carrying the message of the gospel to the world. They had no idea what Jesus was up to. He was a a teacher that people were amazed at. He was a miracle worker that people flocked to. But he was also building into these men the character that they needed to become the leaders of what we call the church. And if it wasn't for what Jesus did even on a boat in a storm a couple of thousand years ago, we might not be sitting here if he hadn't allowed them to be mature and complete. What are the stakes for you? And I know this isn't what we normally think when we're facing a storm, but what might be at stake for you in the middle of whatever storm you're facing? What might be the result that you can't anticipate or imagine would come out of it a year from now or two years from now or ten years from now because God has you in this very stormy place where it seems like he's taking a nap and you can't see a way out. What might he be up to? You know, when we did the 40 days in the Word, one of the things that that we learned, one of the ways to, to kind of devotionally study Scripture was the personalizing of, of Scripture, right? And, and boy, is there never a better time to personalize the Bible than when you find yourself in a storm. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is my refuge. God is my strength. God's an ever-present help in time of trouble. I, I need to make that personal. It's not just the psalmist writing words into the air. No, it's right now for me here. God is my refuge. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. God, you will never leave me. God, you will never forsake me. The 23rd Psalm is kind of already sort of personalized for us. But even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That that the promises of God tell us that even in the midst of a storm, he is there and he can use that storm to bring about something that we might not can anticipate. His purposes, his will, ultimately his good pleasure. So Jesus looks at these disciples and asks a very pointed question. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Not why are you afraid, but why have you let fear become the all-consuming 
reality of your life right now? Why have you missed the fact that though I might be asleep, I'm still in the boat? And though you may think I'm uninterested, all I have to do is say, peace, be still, and everything changes. And that ultimately, I'm the one that told you to get in the boat, and I'm the one taking us to the place we're going, and I can work even the storm. That's one of our verses, right? God works together most things. No, I think it's all things. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. If we're thinking about some of the heroes of the faith, we just saw a picture not so long ago of Franklin Graham. Fascinating story. Rebel with a Cause, I think, was his biography or autobiographical work. Interesting read. His father, Billy Graham. Heroes of the faith. If you read the accounts of their life, you will find the people that they are today is probably the result of the enduring of many storms. That you don't become mature. That you don't become a giant in the faith if everything is laid out in front of you. In fact, we wouldn't raise our kids that way. We wouldn't take away every, or give them every possible advantage and make sure they never encounter any struggle. I mean, don't you tell your kids to clean your room? How's that working out for you? Any hints? Need some help? Never mind. We know these things. And so Jesus would look at us and, and whatever the storm we're facing, maybe he'd ask you the same question. Why are you so afraid? Not that it's not scary. Not that there's not uncertainty in what you're facing or what the outcome might be. But have you forgotten that I'm here? And have you forgotten that I can use even this for my glory? I thank you that in your grace and in your wisdom that you give us so many promises in your word. And I thank you that many of those promises remind us that ultimately you are in control and your purposes will prevail that you remind us that you never leave us and that you will, even in the most difficult, stormy times of our lives, be near for us and work those things for your glory. Lord, I know there are people here today, I know they're facing storms of all sorts and kinds, of all shapes and sizes. And I know there's some of us who are in the midst of those storms feeling pretty afraid. Or maybe we've even forgotten the truth the disciples forgot, that, that you're there. And to say you're there means that you, the, the word that became flesh, God incarnate, the very glory and beauty and image of God is 
is available and His power is right there. Maybe we thought this is the one storm, God, not even you can redeem me. Not even you can make good come out of it. Because all we see around us is the hurt and the pain, maybe even the loss. God, I pray that we'll be reminded that you work everything together for good for those who love you and called according to to your purposes. That you are indeed glorified. stand up from the boat and you speak peace to the waves and the wind of the storms in our life. Lord, we seek that. We ask that you would do that. We ask that you would intervene, but we also ask that you would give us patience in the midst of that storm that that it might do its work in maturing us and making us complete. Thank you, Father this reminder from your word. Thank you that you see us through every storm. As we come to our time of response now, Father, I pray that that you might call people to yourself. That you might show them, even in the midst of whatever storm they face, a little glimpse of your beauty, of your glory. A reminder that you are there, you are able moments of our service, I pray in Christ's name.